0: section three of reminiscences and table talk of samuel rogers this librivox recording is in the public domain dr power had a great deal of sensibility when i read to him in lincoln's inn fields the account of O'Coigley's death the tears rolled down his cheeks footnote james O'Coigley, alias james quigley alias james john fivey was tried for high treason at Maidstone and hanged at Pennington Heath during the 7th, 1798. When he had hung about ten minutes, he was beheaded, and the head and body were immediately buried under the gallows. The rest of his sentence that, quote, while he was yet alive, his bowels shall be taken out and burnt before his face, etc., having been remitted. End of footnote. One day, Mackintosh, having vexed him by calling O'Quigley a rascal, Parr immediately rejoined, Yes, Jamie, he was a bad man, but he might have been worse. He was an Irishman, but he might have been a Scotchman. He was a priest, but he might have been a lawyer. He was a Republican, but he might have been an apostate. After their quarrel about Gerald, Parr often spoke with much bitterness of Mackintosh, Among other severe things, he said that, quote, Mackintosh came up from Scotland with a metaphysical head, a cold heart, and open hands. At last they were reconciled, having met for that purpose in my house, but their old familiarity was never fully re-established. Pa was frequently very tiresome in conversation, talking like a schoolmaster. He had a horror of the east wind, and Tom Sheridan once kept him prisoner in the house for a fortnight by fixing the weathercock in that direction. Helen Maria Williams was a very fascinating person, but not handsome, and knew her intimately in her youth when she resided in London with her mother and sisters. They used to give very agreeable evening parties at which I have met many of the Scotch literati, Lord Monboddo, etc., Late in life, Helen translated into English, and very beautiful English too, humbles, long work, personal narrative of travels, etc., and I believe nearly the whole impression still lies in Longman's warehouse. When she was in Paris during the Revolution, she has seen men and women who were waiting for admission at the door of the theatre suddenly leave their station on the passing of a set of wretches going to be guillotined, and then, after having ascertained that none of their relations or friends were among them, very unconcernedly returned to the door of the theatre. I frequently dined with her at Paris when Kosciuszko and other celebrated persons were of the party. When Lord Erskine heard that somebody had died worth £200,000, he observed, Oh, that's a very pretty sum to begin the next world with. A friend of mine, said "Osgum was suffering from a continual wakefulness, and various methods were tried to send me to sleep, but in vain. At last his physicians resorted to an experiment which succeeded perfectly. They dressed him in a watchman's coat, put a lantern into his hand, placed him in a sentry box, and he was asleep in ten minutes. To all letters soliciting his, quote, subscription to anything, Erskine had a regular form of reply, namely, Sir, I feel much honoured by your application to I me, and I beg to subscribe. Here the reader had to turn over the leaf. Myself, your very obedient servant, etc. I wish I could recollect all the anecdotes of his early life which Erskine used to relate with such spirit and dramatic effect. He had been in the navy and he said that he once managed to run a vessel between two rocks where it seemed almost impossible that she could have been driven. He had also been in the army, and on one occasion saved the life of a soldier who was condemned to death by making an earnest appeal in his behalf to the general in command and his wife. Erskine, having got the pardon, rode off with it at full speed to the place of execution, where he arrived just as the soldier was kneeling, and the muskets were levelled for the fatal shot. Boskin used to say that when the hour came that all secrets should be revealed, we should know the reason why shoes are always made too tight. When he had a house at Hampstead, he entertained the very best company. I have dined there with the Prince of Wales, the only time I ever had any conversation with His Royal Highness. On that occasion the Prince was very agreeable and familiar. Among other anecdotes which he told us of Lord Thurlow, I remember these two. The first was, Thurlow once said to the prince, Sir, your father will continue to be a popular king as long as he continues to go to church every Sunday and to be faithful to that ugly woman, your mother. But you, sir, will never be popular. The other was this. While his servants were carrying Thurlow upstairs to his bedroom just before his death, They happened to let his legs strike against the banisters, upon which he uttered the last words he ever spoke, a frightful imprecation on, all their souls. Erskine said that the Prince of Wales was quite a cosmogony man, alluding to the Vicar of Wakefield, for he had only two classical quotations, one from Homer and one from Virgil, which he never failed to sport when there was any opportunity of introducing them. Latterly, Erskine was very poor, no wonder, for he always contrived to sell out of the funds when they were very low, and to buy in when they were very high. By heaven, he would say, I am a perfect kite, all paper. The boys might fly me. Yet poor as he was, he still kept the best society. I have met him at the Duke of Yorks, etc., etc. Footnote by him reader's note that is by thomas erskine to me as i sat with my pen in my hand after dinner in st james's palace in eighteen sixteen samuel rogers end of footnote the first brief greenwich hospital cause footnote this was an application to the court of the king's bench for a criminal information against captain thomas bailey lieutenant governor of greenwich hospital for a libel contained in a printed case a memorial addressed to the governors of the hospital in which he exposed serious abuses in that hospital and reflected severely on the conduct of the parties having the management of it. Howell's State Trials, Volume 21, end of footnote. On a Sunday in June 1778, I was engaged to dine with Agar in New Norfolk Street, who had become acquainted with me at Tunbridge Wells. But I was persuaded by a young man, William Lyon, an attorney, to walk as far as Endfield Chase and dine with Mr. Barnes, a wine merchant in St. Mary remarkable for the excellence of his claret. When half way, he challenged me to leap over a ditch by the roadside. I leapt over it, but in returning, the bank gave way and I fell and sprained my ankle. The expedition was over, I could proceed no farther and returned in a stagecoach. I had left kentish town and then was living in red lion passage while the house which i had taken in sergeant's inn was painting and whitewashing my wife was confined at the time and at her suggestion i resolved to keep my engagement at aggers she said i was properly punished and i felt that i was when i arrived the dinner had begun a tall man drew his chair aside and i went into the gap he talked much about the pictures and so did i though i knew little of the subject turning that little to as good an account as i could when dinner was over he drew agger aside and asked who i was agger said i was a lawyer and said much in my favour could he be prevailed upon to take a brief for my brother perhaps he could said agger in his pompous manner I knew nothing of this conversation, but on my return home next day, my servant John Nichols, who had served under me in the royals and who, when he set my books in order, always used to place the Bible atop, as that he said was the best book, told me when he opened the door that I must be in another scrape, for a cross, ill-looking man in a large gold-laced cocked hat had been twice inquiring for me. He insists, sir, upon seeing you, and is at this moment waiting for you in Bloomsbury Square Coffee House. I went there, and there I found an old seaman with a furrowed face. He was sitting gloomily in one of the boxes with a small red trunk on the table before him and his sword lying on the trunk. I mentioned my name, he said. There are my papers. Will you read them over? It ended in my taking them home. I was called to the bar in a few days, July the 6th, and at a consultation held on November the 1st, Beecroft, Peckham and Murphy were for consenting to a compromise our client to pay all costs. My advice, gentlemen, I said, may savor more of my late profession than my present, but I am against consenting. I'll be damned if I do, said Bailey, and he hugged me in his arms, crying, you are the man for me. Then the consultation is over, said Beercroft. It is, I replied. Let us walk in the gardens. When the cause came on, the senior counsel exhausted the day and the patience of the court. It grew dusk and my turn arrived when Lord Mansfield adjourned. I began next morning, fresh and before a fresh audience, and when it was over, all crowded round me. Sir Archibald Macdonald had known me at school, Lee had known my father at Harrogate, and that night I went home and saluted my wife with sixty-five retaining fees in my pocket. Had I not taken a nobleman's degree of MA, I could not have been called to the bar till two years afterwards. I was then in my twenty-ninth year, having been born on January the twenty-first, seventeen forty-nine. Reader's note, end of, Dictation to Samuel Rogers. His notes of Erskine's conversation resume. I asked Erskine if he really was the author of two little poems attributed to him. The geranium was mine, not so the birth of the rose, a poem ascribed to me. Often I was employed to establish a will, and the history of one of them I can never forget. Two old maids in a country town, being quizzical in their dress and demeanour, were not unfrequently the sport of the idle boys in the market-place, and being once so beset on their way to church, a young curate who had been just appointed there reproved the urchins as he passed by in his gown and cassock, and offering an arm to each of the ladies, conducted them triumphantly into their pew near the pulpit. A great intimacy followed, and Dying not long afterwards, they left him all they had. The will was disputed, and when I rose in my place to establish it, I related the story and said, Such, gentlemen, is the value of small courtesies. In my first speech here, I was browbeaten by the judge upon the bench, and honest Jack Lee took my part. When he died, he left me this bag and I need not say how much I value it. It shall serve me while I live, and when I die I will be buried in it. Dunning, afterwards Lord Ashburton, was, quote, stating the law to a jury at Guildhall when Lord Mansfield interrupted him by saying, If that be law, I'll go home and burn my books. My lord, replied Dunning, you had better go home and read them. Dunning was remarkably ugly. One night, while he was playing whist at Nando's with Horn Horntook and two others, Lord Thurlow called at the door and desired the waiter to give a note to Dunning, with whom, though their politics were so different, he was very intimate. The waiter did not know Dunning by sight. Take the note upstairs, said Thurlow, and deliver it to the ugliest man at the card table, to him who most resembles the knave of spades. The note immediately reached its destination. Horn Took used often to tell this anecdote. End of section three.